It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A warning to our listeners. This episode contains audio of graphic violence and police brutality, as well as language that some listeners may find offensive. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from New York City, and this is part three of an Intercepted special, American Mythology, the Presidency of Donald Trump. It's a widely known fact but it bears repeating. The last job that Donald Trump held before becoming president of the United States was television reality show host. Mastered the art of the deal and have turned the name Trump into the highest quality brand. And as the master, I want to pass along my knowledge to somebody else. I'm looking for The Apprentice. Back in 2005, The Apprentice was entering its fourth season, Viewership had been on the decline, and Trump, seeking to boost ratings, engineered a plan. It was simple. For the fourth season, he'd set one team, made up entirely of white people, against another team, made up entirely of black people. Trump explained it to Howard Stern. It would be nine blacks against nine whites, all highly educated, very smart, strong, beautiful people, right? Yes. Do you like it? Yes. Do you like it, Robin? Well, I think you're going to have a riot. Yes, <laughs> I like it. Now, to their credit, the executives at NBC never greenlit Trump's white versus black reality show fantasy. This little-known episode is just one in decades of Trump's overtly racist, anti-black, attention-seeking career. From calling for the execution of the Central Park Five to sparking a crazy right-wing troll operation dedicated to claiming that Barack Obama was not really an American, Trump's racism and clear targeting of black people has been publicly documented, his views on race clear as day. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? If that's okay. I want surveillance. Donald Trump is, and has been, a racist his entire professional life. I think today that a well-educated black person, male or female, has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white person. Of course I hate these people, and let's all hate these people, because maybe hate is what we need if we're going to get something done. They don't look like Indians to me, and they don't look like the Indians. Now, maybe we say politically correct or not politically correct, they don't look like Indians to me. On a practical level, 
Donald Trump's real political career began with his promotion of birtherism, the racist conspiracy theory to delegitimize the first black president, Barack Obama. Trump engaged in numerous publicity stunts in his Pink Panther-esque campaign to prove that Obama was actually a Kenyan Muslim who was not really born in Hawaii. Look, he was born Barry Sotero. Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the line, he changed his name. I heard he had terrible marks, and he ends up in Harvard. He wrote a book that was better than Ernest Hemingway. Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? I, I think he probably... He have to? Because I have to, and everybody else has to. Three weeks ago, when I started, I thought he was probably born in this country. And now I really have a much bigger doubt than I did before. But based on and, what? And you know what? His grandmother in Kenya said he was born in Kenya, and she was there and witnessed the birth. Okay? Today, I'm very proud of myself because I've accomplished something that nobody else has been able to accomplish. I was just informed while on the helicopter that our president has finally released a birth certificate. I am really honored, frankly, to have played such a big role. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. I finished it. You know what I mean. When Trump officially launched his presidential campaign, he told the world exactly who he believed America's internal enemies were and what he would do as president. And the most public and open white supremacists celebrated accordingly. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! After Trump's election as president of the United States, white nationalist groups, militias, and everyday racist Americans felt emboldened to act out in the open and with more impunity. Fuck political correctness! Fuck political correctness! Send them bastards back. I'm sure that paperwork comes in Spanish. Ignorance and immigrants, they mix together! Woo! If you don't speak English and don't contribute, get out! Hate crimes spiked, and anti-immigrant rhetoric led to scattered attacks in the United States against minority groups. One gunman massacred 11 Jewish worshippers at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Three, one, five, one, three, we're under fire. We're under fire. He's got an automatic weapon. He's firing out of front of the synagogue. While Trump and right-wing media attacked migrants as invaders. It's an invasion. onslaught, this invasion. It is an invasion. You know that. I say invasion, they say, isn't that terrible? I don't know what these people are thinking. We're talking about an invasion of our country. No nation can allow its borders to be overrun. And that's an invasion. I don't care what they say. I don't care what the fake media says. That's an invasion of our country. Back in 2018, novelist and comic book writer Matt Johnson explained on Intercepted how Trump's election impacted his own family. Like, this election has resulted in, in the last six months, both of my daughters have been called niggers at school, right? Um, One by a kid wearing a Trump hat. So, like, my, my life is directly affected by that. My wife, who was wearing um, a head wrap. She's African-American and like a lot of African-American women takes a lot of pride in her hair and, and, and getting the right products and everything else. And she wear, was wearing a head wrap to go buy some products and um, was followed out to her car and by somebody asking her about, you know, why are you wearing that? And other white people stood around and watched. 
Like nobody st- stepped in or anything. Like my life has been affected by this. Like and a lot of people's lives have been affected by this. Trump's narrative about the Obama era was often fired off as a buckshot with an array of fallacy-laced pellets. Obama was corrupt. He was not a real American. He depleted the U.S. military. Obama wanted to take away the guns of white people while offering support for so-called black identity extremists. Trump also frequently used Obama's home city of Chicago in his speeches as a catch-all placeholder for attacking black Americans as violent criminals who needed to be put back in their place. And you look at what's going on in Chicago, what the hell is going on in Chicago? What the hell is happening there? It's embarrassing to us as a nation all over the world. They're talking about Chicago. Afghanistan is a safe place by comparison. It's not even conceivable. That's worse than Afghanistan, I hate to say it. That's worse than any war zone that we're in. Chicago-born educator and author Eve Ewing saw this rhetoric from Trump about her city as him preparing the battlefield for justifying state-sanctioned violence wrapped in the cloak of restoring law and order. It's very convenient to use Chicago as a symbol that is really, for many people, kind of like an effective dog whistle. It frightens people. It It's used in the service of the same kind of rhetoric um, that we heard in past presidential administrations with things like, you know, welfare queens and crack babies, right? These are racialized images that are meant to inspire fear and loathing in the hearts of Americans and to make them feel as though there's justification for for any kind of extreme crackdown, right, that might happen afterwards. It has nothing to do with an actual desire to help or care for, uplift or support or nurture, or even listen to people who actually live here. This year, the brutal killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis ignited a new and revolutionary chapter in the Black Lives Matter movement. Sustained protests over the summer may have culminated in the largest protest movement in the history of the United States, with millions of Americans taking to the streets across the country, from major cities to rural towns. Trump has used his massive online platform and the office of the presidency to make the situation as incendiary and violent as possible. Every night we're going to get tougher and tougher. And at some point, there's going to be retribution because there has to be. These people are vandals, but they're agitators, but they're really, they're terrorists in a sense. Because these are professional agitators. These are professional anarchists. These are people that hate our country. These are not acts of peaceful protest, but really domestic terror. These are not acts of peaceful protest. These are acts of domestic terror. Instead of recognizing the validity of what so many activists and ordinary citizens have been saying about the state of racial injustice in this country, Trump's done what he's always done. He appealed to so-called real Americans with the language of hate, violence, threats, and historical revisionism. The radical left wants to tear down everything in its way and in its place. They want power for themselves. They want power They want to uproot and demolish every American value. They want to wipe away every trace of religion from national life. They want to indoctrinate our children, defund our police, abolish the suburbs, incite riots, and leave every city at the mercy of the radical left. 
That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. It's been hell for suburbia. Indigenous historian Nick Estes explained how Trump's approach to these protests fits squarely in the long racist history of colonialism and the United States. Trump, he's invoking this kind of idea of lawlessness that has been unleashed by Black-led resistance all over the country and now internationally to make this argument that the very core, the very idea of America, as we know it, quote unquote, right, is under attack. Well, first of all, we have arrested, I think almost, but it could be over the number, hundreds of people. We have arrested a lot of people for what they've done. They've created uh, bedlam. They've destroyed very important things. I mean, you're also talking about statues of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. And if there's any lesson that we can learn from colonialism, it involves three things. God, gold, and glory, right? The soft underbelly of this entire project has always been glory. The idea that this nation is built on an exceptional kind of unique history, right? The city on the hill kind of thesis that came out of the pilgrim mythology. And so in this moment, Trump is trying to essentially rewrite history and to say that there are winners and there are losers, right? And it's a very kind of facile reading of history. And I don't think that the advocates that are calling for the the tearing down of these monuments or the, you know, even the replacement in some instances are saying that, you know, we should reduce the the history of racism, of imperialism to just the civil war, but that it's a very complicated history, especially when you factor in something like settler colonialism. And so in this instance, he's saying, you know, our history, deep ignorance of our history. And whose history is that? And we have to cherish our past. We have to cherish good or bad. We have to understand our past. We have to understand our history. Because if we don't know our history, it could all happen again. Have to know our history. Trump's re-election campaign has now placed the notion of a civil war, a race war, law and order versus socialism at the forefront. He is hedging on many of his 2016 tactics again, but now with the extraordinary power of the executive branch, the ability to send executive orders out like tweets, and a virtually privatized Justice Department that appears to be coordinating its official functions with his re-election campaign. And I say this openly, Bill Barr can go down as the greatest attorney general in the history of our country, or he can go down as just another guy. It depends. They have all the stuff. You don't need anything else. You know, they want everything. You don't need anything else. They all lied to Congress. They were liars. They were cheaters. They were treasonous. It was treason. But Bill Barr, you're saying, has to prosecute all of these individuals to, to well, be a great attorney general. Look, look, I mean, he's, he's one of the most I, talented I, attorney generals. Trump has regularly encouraged brutality and extrajudicial action among police and law enforcement agencies. And he appears to have the tacit, if not open, support of many hyper-militarized police forces. This dangerous reality has come into sharp focus over the past several months of rebellion and protest. There has to be retribution when you have crime like this. There can't be guys standing up that want to fight. They want to fight. But the, you can't throw bricks at people with shields. But the While the Trump administration has sought to consolidate authority over government bureaucracies for the president's political and at times personal agenda, it has simultaneously encouraged actions 
from private actors and fringe paramilitary groups. You're going to have a backlash like you've never seen if these people don't stop. Because you have very smart, very tough people that aren't going to take it anymore. And once they say, we're not going to take it anymore, it's going to end in a very vicious backlash. And that's a terrible thing. Over these four years, these unofficial White House forces have been at the center of racial violence, acting as vigilantes responding to the dog whistles of their commander. Princeton University professor Eddie Gloud Jr. saw Trump's rise as a victorious revival of the George Wallace strand of U.S. politics. That particular strand of American politics has become mainstream. The fringe, you know, those white identity nationalists who are living in the mountains in Washington and in western Pennsylvania, right? They're now at the heart, at the center of the political party that has control over the country. And to my mind, that is surprising in the sense that I grew up in a moment in which, you know, racial code words, dog whistles— with kind of political lexicon. Now it's just foghorns. People don't dog whistle. They just say it and activate all sorts of fears. And you combine that with the fact that the contradictions of neoliberalism are in full view. Even as the Department of Homeland Security identifies white supremacist violence as the greatest domestic terrorism threat in the United States— Donald Trump extols the right-wing extremism that has blossomed under his tenure and that uses the specter of violence to undermine and at times violently attack, in some cases kill, his perceived enemies. You have people that are very angry. You start seeing them, the trucks come in and the this comes in and that. All of a sudden, you're going to see a backlash, the likes of which you haven't seen in many, many years because people aren't going to take it. You know, a lot of people... This is all a left movement, not a right movement. Right. But a lot of people on the right are sitting home watching a television set, looking at Kenosha and looking at Chicago, where they shoot people and kill people by by the dozens every week. It's it's not even believable. But they say they look at it and they say, I'm not going to allow that to happen in my country. In his first debate with Joe Biden, Trump staked out an openly fascistic position refusing to bluntly condemn neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Instead, Trump called on them to effectively sit tight and wait for his orders. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what, what, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing... Trump has railed against self-identified anti-fascists. He's presided over kidnappings and even killings of activists, including a Portland man who was gunned down by U.S. Marshals deployed by Trump. The president appears to be celebrating that operation as a political assassination of a U.S. citizen on American soil. Now, we sent in the U.S. Marshals for the killer, the man that killed the young man in the street. She right. shot him. I mean, it was yeah, on television. Cold, 
cold-blooded killed him. He didn't like his hat or he didn't like something, and it wasn't a Trump hat. Right, this peaceful it was, prayer. It was a lot, it was a religious hat. Right. And he shot him cold blood. Two and a half days went by, and I put out, when are you going to go get him? And the U.S. Marshals went in to get him. Good. And in a short period of time, they ended in a gunfight. This guy was a violent criminal. A lot of them out there. And the U.S. Marshals killed him. Racial opportunism in presidential politics is certainly not unique to Donald Trump. It's been deployed by Democrats and Republicans alike throughout U.S. history, and it was used effectively by people now denouncing Trump, among them Bill and Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, the so-called New Democrats, all of whom have used racialized propaganda and attacks to appear tough on crime. And Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. George H.W. Bush pushing his infamous Willie Horton ad. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes, Dukakis on crime. It was also a favorite tactic of Ronald Reagan. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers, to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. In many ways, Donald Trump is a more open, craven expression of what the GOP has long thought and stood for. He's using some of the same tactics deployed by politicians from both parties, but he's doing it with the opposite of subtlety and on a daily basis. Here's The Atlantic's Adam Serwer. When you look back to Reconstruction after the Civil War, the uh, white majority governments that took power from the Reconstruction governments often violently, in some cases more blatantly violently than others. In some cases, it was simply repressing the vote. In other cases, it was actually overthrowing the government. These guys were all saying that they were crusading against corruption. They were saying that the Reconstruction governments were taking taxpayer money and stealing it and spending it on things they shouldn't have been spending it on. And this was just a necessary corrective to fatally corrupt government. But that in itself was also not a justification for authoritarian rule. Often those things go hand in hand. That is a sort of false anti-corruption crusade that justifies a kind of ethnic hegemony is something that's in the past in American history has functioned very well to extinguish democracy as we understand how it should work. Here it has specifically worked with the ideology of white supremacy. And so it's not a coincidence that Trump is both extremely corrupt and rails against corruption and pairs that with his kind of white populism because that's how he makes himself look incorruptible to his followers. It is precisely that commitment to his group, regardless of all other principles, that makes people feel as though he is incorruptible, even though he is fundamentally corrupt in the most basic sense. The Democrats' brazen attempt to overthrow our government will produce a backlash at the ballot box, the likes of which they have never, ever seen before in the history of this country. The Trump administration has been packed with certain political figures that should never have been allowed back into public office. One of them is Trump's former attorney general, Jeff Sessions. While his tenure as the AG was a short one, his appointment sent a clear message. 
Sessions is a man who, in 1986, was considered too racist for even a federal judge appointment. Decades later, thanks to Trump, Sessions found himself almost gleefully in a position to rescind voting rights protections, establish capital punishment for drug crimes, and curb Obama-era reforms of the unprecedented paramilitarization of state and local law enforcement agencies across the country. The office of sheriff is a critical part of of the Anglo-American heritage of law enforcement. We must never erode this historic office. I know this. You know this. And then, of course, there's Stephen Miller, architect of some of the most heinous and racist immigration rhetoric and policies coming out of this administration. Miller emerged as one of the most vicious proponents against asylum seekers. Well known for his extremist anti-immigrant ideology, once Miller was in the White House as a senior advisor, his policies ranged from attempting to flat-out ban immigration from Muslim-majority countries to separating children from their parents in ICE detention jails. The whole world will soon see, as we begin to take further actions, that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. At stake is the question of whether or not the United States remains a sovereign country. Backed by men like Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller, Donald Trump's base of extremist supporters and white nationalists have been repeatedly encouraged by the president over these four years. Blame, yes, I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And, 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 and if you reported it accurately, you would say. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. Trump's defense of white supremacist violence feels like a demarcation line in his presidency. If there had ever been any doubt, white supremacists now knew they had an ally in the White House. This represents a turning point for the people of this country. We are determined to take our country back. We're going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. That's what we believed in. That's why we voted for Donald Trump, because he said he's going to take our country back. And that's what we got to do. For many Americans, the ascension of Donald Trump in the wake of the country's first black president was inexplicable. Many people looked outward to explain away his victory, while others sought to place blame on specific quarters of the U.S. electorate for what they perceived as a total aberration. During the Trump campaign and then right after he was elected, there was a lot of justifiable and understandable, you know, fear, hand-wringing and shock, especially from corners of liberal white America where people thought basically this was a referendum that made them realize that the America that they thought they lived in does not exist or this election constituted a transformational historical event that somehow gave permission or highlighted, you know, new forms of racism or new forms of xenophobia. Again, author Eve Ewing. 
in no way do I want to undercut what I do think have been some of the uniquely awful aspects of this administration. But I also think it's important for folks to remember that this is not like the man in a laboratory conjuring up these racist people like Frankensteins who would never exist, you know, Frankenstein monsters that never existed. Rather is him giving a voice and a platform for an energy behind white supremacy and hatred that has a long history in America and that actually in my opinion, constitutes the very fabric of the nation. And so I think that that's important to realize because it makes you understand that in order to conquer or change or transform um, the kind of hatred and and vile evil that we're seeing right now, it's not just about these particular voters. It's not just about this particular election, but we have to be brave enough to confront and understand a history that is much deeper Despite bipartisan criticism of Trump's response to Charlottesville, Trump spent the entirety of his term unabashedly spewing racist statements and attacking people of color. The White House is denying claims that President Trump said in a June meeting that all immigrants from Haiti have AIDS. Trump said immigrants from Nigeria would never, quote, go back to their huts. Saying Puerto Ricans want everything to be done for them. The president has decided to pardon Sheriff Joe Arpaio of Arizona. To say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now. Out. He's fired. He's fired! He apparently said, this is a quote, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here? You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? If you're not happy here, then you can leave. As far as I'm concerned, if you hate our country, if you're not happy here, you can leave. Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. Although we have a representative in Congress who they say was here a long time ago. They call her Pocahontas. The Chinese virus. Kung flu. I think I've done more for the black community than any other president. The White House press secretary also defending the president after he approvingly retweeted this video of one of his supporters. I am the least racist person you've ever met. And I can tell you, I'm the least racist person there is in the world. Because I am the least racist person ever to serve in office, okay? I am certainly the least racist person. But are you racist? I am the least racist person that you have ever met. I am the least racist person. As I say often, I am the least racist person that anybody's going to meet. I am the least racist person there is anywhere in the world. Are you racist? Absolutely not. I'm the least racist person that you've ever Underneath this naked hatred, something more insidious has been cultivated. Trump's extreme nativist rhetoric inspired actual right-wing terrorism, and the chickens came home to roost. We're back with the breaking news. Uh, you're looking at new video showing the suspect, Caesar Sayak, holding uh, a sign that says CNN sucks, as well as a lot of other nonsense in there. He's at a Trump rally in February. The 56-year-old Florida resident and today was arrested and charged with sending a series of explosive devices, 13 IEDs, 
to prominent critics of President Trump this week. The White House is pushing back against accusations that President Trump's rhetoric encourages white supremacists, like the man accused in the New Zealand mosque shootings. A manifesto purportedly written by the suspect calls the president a symbol of renewed white identity. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know. 20 minutes, 11 dead, six injured. This time, the attack was at a temple in Pittsburgh, the deadliest attack on Jewish Americans in U.S. history. Do you welcome the president to Pittsburgh in the wake of this? I do not welcome this president to my city. Why not? Because he's the purveyor of hate speech. Tonight, law enforcement officials telling ABC News that before the chaos broke out, run, me out, run. That they believe the suspect had been looking for a good place to target and shoot Mexicans. He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like, members of the press, what the f- Connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism, he's promoting racism. And if your state was ever allowed to safely reopen by your governor who doesn't have a clue, she's like Joe, open up your state, Madam Governor, open up your state. The breaking news out of Michigan as state and federal investigators say they've broken up this elaborate domestic terror plot designed to overthrow Michigan's government and kidnap or kill Governor Gretchen Whitmer while she was away on vacation. This summer brought a historic watershed moment in the fight against anti-blackness and for racial justice in America. The killings of Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and other black and brown men and women, sparked what many activists themselves describe as an uprising in defense of black lives and against a racist police state. Protests soon spread from Minneapolis to every single state in the Union, and a wave of Confederate monuments around the country were defiantly torn down. It has fallen. There it is. Let's go. Breaking news here on News 4. We were right here. They have taken down the Confederate statue Albert Pike. Though the overwhelming majority of protests were nonviolent, property damage and looting occurred in cities nationwide. Emboldened by these images, governors activated over 62,000 National Guardsmen. Trump ratcheted up a pressure campaign against governors and mayors, criticizing them for not attacking protesters with enough force. And he even threatened to send in the U.S. military. Twitter, rather, has flagged a post by the president uh, saying that it violates the platform's rules about violence. Uh, The president says, quote, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Waltz and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. As Trump characterized the protests as massive violent mobs, Scores of incidents of police brutality were reported in cities across the country, and they were often caught blatantly on camera. (laughs) 
By the end of June, more than 14,000 people had been arrested. This focus on property destruction ultimately played into Trump's racial rhetoric and gave sustenance to his campaign to portray himself as the noble defender of real America, from the anarchists, terrorists, socialists. We are looking at long-term jail sentences for these vandals and these hoodlums and these anarchists and agitators, and call them whatever you want. Some people don't like that language, but that's what they are. While Trump certainly exploited the destruction of property during protests in various cities for political gain, that's not the whole story. There's a long tradition of property destruction during moments of intense public upheaval and protest, particularly after assassinations of black leaders, police killings and beatings of black people, and famously in Los Angeles in the early 1990s, in response to the acquittals of police who abuse or kill black people with impunity. Western and Santa Monica, and you can see the police have just arrived at this intersection and are just now trying to take control of it. LAPD officers arriving on the scene. Fire department fighting one fire. There's a neighboring fire that is uh, raging uncontrolled. Utter anarchy in the streets of, of Los Angeles tonight. It, it just, it's just getting worse and worse by the hour. At the height of the Black Lives Matter protests earlier this year, the esteemed UCLA historian Robin D.G. Kelly addressed this history and sought to give context to the destruction of property during times of rebellion. So if you think of capitalism as racial capitalism, then the outcome is you cannot eliminate capitalism, overthrow it, without the complete destruction of white supremacy. You know, when we talk about the police and we talk about like defunding the police, if you think of what the police do, the police protect capital. The police were designed to protect property. Going back to not just the slave patrols, but even the system of jails in cities in the 19th century, those jails were designed to hold fugitives, runaways. You know, when you're trying to track down a runaway slave, you pay a jail a fee, you know, to hold that enslaved person until the master could come, identify the person, and take them back into slavery. So when you think about, it, like, the whole system of policing, it's organized around property. If that's the point of the police, then we shouldn't be surprised that qualified immunity or that the violent acts of the police would be supported by capital. Why is that? Because Capital needs a police force that could terrify people. I mean, that's what the police do. Trump has used his attacks on the Black Lives Matter protests and Antifa as a distraction from his colossally incompetent and cold-hearted response to the COVID-19 pandemic a crisis that has disproportionately impacted Black and Latino people, as well as the poor and working classes. It was this tactic that set the stage for Trump's garish and disturbing nativist carnival in South Dakota earlier this year. At a 4th of July speech at the foot of Mount Rushmore, Trump sought to delegitimize the Black Lives Matter protests as being anarchist or Marxist ploys against America— while simultaneously defending Confederate symbols of white domination. Make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. 
to make this possible. They are determined to tear down every statue, symbol, and memory of our national heritage. That is why I am deploying federal law enforcement to protect our monuments, arrest the rioters, and prosecute offenders to the fullest extent of the law. As Trump spoke at Mount Rushmore, indigenous people and native tribes protested his appearance on what they consider to be stolen land. And they also did so in solidarity with the movement for black lives. We have to cherish our past. We have to cherish good or bad. We have to understand our past. We have to understand our history. Because if we don't know our history, it could all happen again. have to know our history. When somebody like Trump says, you know, we're here to protect our national monuments, he's been invoking the language of, of heritage, which is kind of like a dog whistle for the it's heritage, not hate kind of speak around the Confederate monuments as well as the Confederate battle flag. Native American historian Nick Estes is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux tribe. He's not including indigenous people in this in this particular rhetoric because our monuments, our history as indigenous people is under constant erasure. And to reduce the kind of struggles over monuments, over how we know and how we write history in this particular moment to just the idea of Confederate monuments or, you know, Union monuments completely ignores the larger kind of context of U.S. history. And it, it attempts to sanitize it between, oh, we have good colonizers and we have bad colonizers. As protests continued, Trump summoned the threat of violence under the guise of law and order, not only through the power of the state, but once again through thinly veiled appeals to his supporters to act on their own. If Biden wins, the mob wins. If Biden wins, the rioters, anarchists, arsonists, and flag burners. And if they win, Sleepy Joe, if they win, because he has no power over these people, these people are crazed lunatics. If they win, your cities will be like this. You'll lose all rights. Your constitution will be worthless. It'll be a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm not even... Just like in Charlottesville, cars emerged as one of the preferred weapons of white supremacists. This summer, there were at least 104 incidents of people driving vehicles into protesters. 96 of those drivers were civilians, and eight were cops. Trump's rhetoric once again manifested into real-world violence. Armed militias took to the streets, looking to commit violence for Trump's cause under the banner of Making America Great Again. This is America! This is our country! That's right! Historian Dr. Keisha Blaine, author of Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women and the Global Struggle for Freedom, explain the roots of this well-worn authoritarian strategy of using both official and unofficial forces to terrorize already victimized and vulnerable populations. I think about the era of lynching and the reasons why we saw uh, in the late 19th century, even in the early 20th century, so many lynchings taking place across the country. And, And one of the, you know, people would ask at the time, as we're asking now about police violence, why are so many black people being lynched? 
And one of the answers to that question is that there were so many black people were being lynched because white racists were emboldened. They were emboldened by the state. Um, they were emboldened by the support of local police. They recognized that they could do it and they could get away with it. And so the fear is in this moment, what will people do? What will white supremacists do when they recognize that their actions will not lead to any negative consequences? I do worry. And, and already there was one video that caught my attention of a group of white men, some carrying bats and just walking through the streets emboldened and encouraged to go into the communities and, and squash the protests, you know, because they feel like Trump just gave them the green light. A cop can't defend himself, so we're here. Anyone who wants to throw shit at a cop or pick on a cop, pick one of us the fuck out and we'll go around the corner and fight you one-on-one. Today it's bats and tomorrow it's guns. By the end of August, an estimated 15 to 26 million Americans had participated in Black Lives Matter protests. On August 23rd in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a 29-year-old black man named Jacob Blake was shot four times in the back by police as his three young children sat in the back seat of their car. Tonight, there's growing outrage over this video showing at least two police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with their guns drawn, following 29-year-old Jacob Blake as he walks around the front of a gray SUV. We pause the video after he opens the door with his back to an officer. At least seven shots can be heard. Street protests soon followed, with some demonstrators defacing police vehicles and the local courthouse. The National Guard was deployed, and word began to spread that white supremacists were preparing to join them, armed and in the streets. you doing out here? Obviously, you're armed, and uh, you're in front of this business we saw burning last night, so what's up? So people are getting injured, and our job is to protect this business, and part of my job is also help. But there's somebody hurt. I'm running into harm's way. That's why I have my weapon. Like clockwork, armed counter-protesters and militia members arrived in Kenosha, with the sole ambition to confront the largely peaceful protesters. The local police were actually seen thanking these vigilantes, giving them water. Thank you for your cooperation. We understand what you're doing. Thank you. We need water. There's a gun right. We need water. We need water. We'll throw you one. We appreciate you guys. We really do. On the third day of protests, a 17-year-old from Illinois named Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two protesters and wounded another. We're protecting from the citizens, and I just got pepper sprayed by a person in the crowd. So you had non-lethal, but you, you didn't respond? We don't have non-lethal. So you guys are full on ready to defend the property? Yes, we are. Now, if I can ask, can you guys step Oh, we got a gun, baby. Oh! Oh! He shot him. Get his ass! Donald Trump defended the shooter. That was an interesting situation. You saw the same tape as I saw. And uh, he was trying to get away from them, I guess, it looks like. And he fell. And then they very violently attacked him. And it was something that we're looking at right now, and it's under investigation. But uh, I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been, I, he probably would have been killed. But it's under, it's under investigation. 
Like that Apprentice season that never aired, the stoking of racial animus for Trump has one primary function, to pay dividends to his agenda. But Trump is not the host of a reality show now. His words and deeds are deadly. His racism, emboldened by the power of the presidency, is lethal. Here is NYU professor Nikhil Paul Singh. You remember his first, very first political act was taking out a full-page ad in the Daily News calling for the execution of five African-American boys who were wrongly accused, it turns out, of raping a white woman in Central Park. And Trump called for their death. He's still, even in the revelations that have come since, uh, never admitted uh, that he was wrong. Trump is all of it, really. He's the reactionary business ethic. He's unilateral militarism. He's hostile to a diverse demos. And he embraces the extractive mania of environmental deregulation. He represents, in some ways, all the worst aspects of our history. And they have all, in many ways, coalesced to all of our horror. And now, as the 2020 election looms ever closer, the Trump campaign, the GOP, and the president himself are waging an open campaign to disenfranchise voters, particularly black voters. Journalist Ari Berman, an election expert and author of the book Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, discussed these tactics. The first thing to understand is that Republicans were already engaged in a widespread effort to make it more difficult to vote because of the pandemic. They had already passed restrictions on voting in half the states in the country, in 25 states, ranging from requiring uh, voter IDs to cutting back on early voting, to closing polling places, to purging the voter rolls, to preventing people from with past felony convictions from voting. So there were a whole series of restrictions they had already put in place before the pandemic. And now voting is just so much more difficult when people can't safely leave their homes. And the country is really not prepared to hold anywhere close to an all-male election. What Trump and William Barr have said in recent weeks about the upcoming election is absolutely chilling. Both are spouting blatant lies about widespread Democratic voter fraud. This whole thing I've been telling you, this whole ballot scam is going to cause a lot of problems for our country. I want to see a very peaceful transition, but it's got to be a legal process. This is playing with fire. We're a very closely divided country here. And if people have to have confidence in the results of the election and the legitimacy of the government, and people trying to change the rules to this this methodology, which, as a matter of logic, is very open to fraud and coercion, is reckless and dangerous, and the people are playing with fire. Trump has called on his own supporters to just show up rogue at polling places on election day to monitor other voters a clear call for acts of intimidation. President Trump, you I'm go first. I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it. As you know, today there was a big problem. In Philadelphia, they went in to watch. They were called poll watchers, a very safe, very nice thing. They were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. You know why? Because bad things happen in Philadelphia, bad things. And you- I am urging... I am urging my people. I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair election, I am 100% on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. And I'll tell you what, what from a common sense, I'll tell you what it means. It means you have a fraudulent election. You're sending out 80 million ballots. They're not not equipped to 
These people aren't equipped to handle it. Number one. Number two, okay. they cheat. They cheat. Hey, they found ballots in a waste paper basket three days ago, and they all had the name right. military ballots. They were military. They all had the name Trump on them. It is abundantly clear that voter suppression, with all of its real and racist history in this country, it's not going to be a concern for Donald Trump. It's going to be an asset. As Ari Berman points out, William Barr, Donald Trump, and others, they'll be focused on how to intimidate, disenfranchise, and contest the results, plunging us all into assured chaos come November. The biggest thing that I'm afraid about is a Bush v. Gore scenario, not just in one state, but in five or six states, and the Supreme Court declaring Donald Trump the winner of the next election, as opposed to the people actually deciding. This has been part three of an intercepted limited documentary series, American Mythology, the Presidency of Donald Trump. Over the next week, we're going to be releasing an episode each weekday, focusing on a different aspect of the Trump presidency and digging into the history and context of the actions of this administration. Make sure to tune in on Monday to part four of this series, where we'll take an in-depth look at Donald Trump's policies on war and national security. American Mythology, The Presidency of Donald Trump is an Intercepted Limited documentary series. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Desidoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription for this program is done by Lucy Croning. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Make sure to tell your friends and even your foes about this series and tune in for episode four on Monday. Until then, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.